thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I am delighted that you've joined me today, and I just want to thank those of you who are walking with me on this, um, I guess I could say, pilgrim journey to a better understanding of law and putting law in a proper cosmological framework uh, for the purpose of understanding how to go about pursuit of the dominion mandate in effective ways. And today, I'm going to use a couple of audio clips from Chuck Knox Unplugged that I referenced last week and just didn't get to, but I, I think they'll be really helpful. But just like last week's episode uh, was was driven by the after-school clubs and their relationship to uh, what I would call the cosmology of dominion, today's episode is going to be driven by some other recent events that I hope will be instructive for us regarding this exercise of dominion. Specifically, I want to put today's examination of dominion and cosmology in the context of recent pro-abortion activities in the states following the Supreme Court's decision reversing Roe v. Wade last year. The latest activity was actually last week, a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court very favorable to abortion. Unless you lived in Pennsylvania, you may not have heard about it, but we'll look at it in just a moment. But I think that decision also needs to take into consideration the defeat last year of a pro-life amendment to the Kansas Constitution and the enactment of two pro-abortion amendments uh, in the last year, Michigan's Constitution, uh, and it extends greater protection to abortion than existed under the standard of review applied by the United States Supreme Court under its abortion regime. And I'll I'll get to what that standard of review is in just a moment. And then um, Ohio, just this past spring, adopted a very similar uh, amendment to its constitution that has the same standard of review as that of Michigan, which, again, as I note, is worse than the standard the Supreme Court applied under its abortion regime. Now, Virginia is looking at putting a similar amendment to its constitution on the ballot and perhaps... Uh, Maine is as well, and I expect uh, we'll see more of those. Now, to appreciate um, what we'll be talking about today, let me explain briefly what a standard of review means. And it's simply a framework or a test or a lens through which a court will evaluate whether a statute is constitutional. So by analogy, You might have a framework or a lens for how to evaluate how clean your child's room is, and that lens may be different for how you would evaluate how clean your kitchen is uh, or or your personal bedroom, and you might have still yet a different lens uh, for how clean your garage is, and just like that, the court has its lenses by which it evaluates certain laws, and there are three of them, three standards of review, and I would just say in passing Um, They're made up and not found in the Constitution. 
Now, of those, the first one is pretty easy to meet. It's called the rational basis test, which simply means the court would, would look at a statute and say, could a rational person conclude that the statute in question achieves a legitimate governmental end? And then there's another one that's very hard, if not on impossible to meet, and it's called strict scrutiny. And that's applied to something that's a constitutional right, like perhaps the right to keep and bear arms, we might say, or something the court considers a fundamental right, even if it's not enumerated in the Constitution. And, of course, there's where abortion fits in, right? And then there's another one called intermediate scrutiny, and it applies to whatever the court doesn't yet want to say is fundamental, but uh, something the court wants to protect from mere majority vote of the legislature. So again, these, these tiers of rights and governmental ends aren't spelled out in the Constitution, nor are these standards of review. But we live with one because, one, we don't know better, and we hadn't raised up enough good lawyers to get rid of them when they become justices. But anyway, with respect to abortion, long a sacred cow of the judiciary, prior to Dobbs, the United States Supreme Court said that all state laws would be viewed through an intermediate scrutiny. But Michigan and Ohio, by their amendments to their constitution, ratcheted that up to strict scrutiny. Now, what does this mean as a practical matter? Well, let me tell you. Uh, strict scrutiny was the court-imposed standard um, under Tennessee's constitution that was applied to our state abortion laws. And the result was we had no enforceable abortion regulations of any kind. In fact, it was so bad here that a doctor from out of state was coming to Memphis and performing abortions in a motel room. So M Michigan and Ohio have imposed this high standard that essentially means you can't do anything legislative with respect to abortion. Yet we, we could under the old Roe regime, not as much as we wanted, but but we could have informed consent laws and waiting period laws and clinic regulations and require them to carry insurance and all kinds of other things. But all those things now will probably be considered violative of this new standard. So at least the reaction to the result in Dobbs is in those states, matters have been made worse. And part of what I'd encourage us to think about is why things got worse, even though our nation's constitutional jurisprudence on abortion got better. Why did the law get better, but in those states, things got worse? And I want to suggest that perhaps something's in play here at a cosmological level that goes beyond the simplistic notion of saying, well, I guess just the 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 sinners in Ohio and Michigan are worse than the sinners in other states. I mean, maybe that's true, but it, is that all that's happening there in Ohio and Michigan and on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? Now, speaking of the court, let's let's go back to that decision from last week. And, man, I'll tell you, some of what's said in here will blow your mind. Now, what the court was doing was interpreting a provision in Pennsylvania's Constitution that says, and I'll quote it here, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania 
because of the sex of the individual. Okay? Now, the abortionists were complaining that a state law prohibiting the use of state Medicaid funds for abortion um, violated this amendment. Okay? And, and several states have laws like that. I think Tennessee has one. So here's what the abortionist argued for uh, contending that excluding abortion from covered Medicaid services was sex discrimination. This is what they said. Providers explained that this amendment, and this is a quote, by singling out and excluding abortion, a procedure sought singularly by women as a function of their sex denies women of the Commonwealth coverage for essential health care services solely on the basis of their sex. And, of course, only women can have abortions, right? So, of course, it would be a discrimination on the basis of sex. Only women get pregnant. Only women have abortions. Well, if that's what you thought, you would be wrong. In a footnote to that sentence, this is what the abortionist says. Pregnancy is a sex-based medical condition. And then they go on to say, providers, though, recognize that transgender men and people whose gender identity is non-binary may have female reproductive organs and be capable of pregnancy and childbirth. So right there, we see the understanding of the human person in a dualistic fashion. I mean, sex is one thing, and yes, it's binary. But that's distinct from gender, which they just said was non-binary. So men can have female reproductive organs and be capable of pregnancy and childbirth. <laughs> but it gets worse than that. Let me continue. They allege that this exclusion of, of abortion as a covered service, listen to this, quote, flows from and reinforces gender stereotypes about the primacy of women's reproductive function and maternal role and thus offends the Pennsylvania Equal Rights Amendment prohibition against sex discrimination and women's constitutional right to equality of rights under the law. Now, see, they're playing games here between sex discrimination against women and sex discrimination based on sex, and they're blurring the lines between sex and women, okay? But now here's the real kicker. And what, what makes all of this make sense, which helps us understand why abortion for females and for men who think of themselves as females and women must be protected. Here's what the court said. Not the abortionist, the court. The recognition of the right to engage in private sexual relationships removes the conduct from the winds of prevailing views on morality. Okay? I mean, hear what they're saying. The recognition of the right to engage in private sexual relationships. We have a right to engage in any kind of sexual relationship we want, and that means that, that prevailing winds and views of morality 
cannot be put into the law to regulate, restrain, or govern sexual relationships. Okay? The court goes on to say, what is considered to be moral changes with the times and is dependent upon societal background. In other words, moral changes and social backgrounds cannot change your fundamental right to whatever private sexual relations you want to have. And so we can't leave that right to engage indiscriminately in whatever sex that you want with consenting persons. I guess they at least have to be consenting. Well, we can't leave that up to the whims of the legislature, the court said that. So what we see here is, is that the cosmological soil in which our understanding of what it means to be human is, is, is changed. It's completely different from the cosmological soil that drove our moral and societal laws early in our nation's history. It's completely different. And the soil today, as should be evident from what I just read, is not just different, it's adverse to and hostile to that earlier soil and its understanding of what it means to be human. Now, you may recall last week, I pointed out how Marx said there needed to be a complete conquest of the Jesus-centered cosmology of the Middle Ages. And we saw that happen by the Satanic Temple's description of its Satan Club. We were able to see there that the soil and the cosmology from which parental rights were derived is gone. And today, in the Pennsylvania court decision, as I explained it, we see how that change in soil from a new cosmology is driving the interpretation of decisions in Pennsylvania's Constitution. See, the Constitution didn't change, but the soil is different, which changes the way those words are now interpreted. But that's the same soil, I submit, that's driving the adoption of the radical pro-abortion amendments in Michigan and Ohio. And if we're going to take to heart the numerous analogies to and metaphors in the Bible about farmers and crops and soils as, as, as something more than just nice stories, then I believe we must take this change in cosmological soil into account in pursuing the dominion mandate. Again, not to suggest compromise on the moral or creational law of God or a compromise on the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, but perhaps a change in figuring out how we plant the garden that we've been tasked to plant in our current cosmological soil so that the kingdom of God will grow in the rest of Eden and in the land outside of Eden. Now, that being said, I want to go back to something I said in my first podcast back on December 1st about the conflict between Jeff Durbin and those in his camp and the U.S. Speaker Mike Johnson and the people in his, his camp. 
and, and here's what I said, and I think the clips that I'm going to play in a moment from exchanges between Chuck Knox and Jason Farley will be helpful to understanding what I was trying to say and perhaps didn't say very well, but, but here is what I said. I believe the tension or conflict, I'm referring there to those two camps, lies in what I think are two cosmologies in operation here, and in many ways, I don't think they're different just opposite applications of the same cosmology. And what that cosmology is will be the focus for the next few minutes as we move to the close of today's podcast. So the first of the two clips I'll be playing involve Jason Farley and Chuck Knox, and they're taken from the Knox Unplugged podcast in 2022 entitled Political Legalism. And I think these clips will help make the meaning behind the episode's title clear. But if not, the point of the whole episode was that many Christians engage in politics with the same legalistic heart or spirit as that of the Pharisees. That's why it was called political legalism. And the final clip is Dr. George Grant commenting on something Knox said during our uh, Unplugged Live event here in Nashville in March of last year. The first clip, though, begins with Jason speaking to the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think it's verses 4 and 5, about how Paul was warring against the culture that was then there and his exhortation on how to wage that war. In the flesh, but we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not bodily, they're not carnal, they're not, um, they're, they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, right? So he says, we, did, we didn't deal in a fleshy way, fleshly way with you, where mm. we thought we could just get you, get you to you know, go through a particular system or you know, do something, and then you would suddenly become we didn't put laws holy. on you to make you right <laughs> right we didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't rulishness it wasn't a bunch of rules that turned you into that he said what we dealt all the way with uh with with your spirit with your imagination with your idolatry um and uh he, he said because we didn't walk according to the flesh right we didn't we didn't solve a problem with a new set of rules we aimed at the formation of your desires, which flow out of your imagination and they flow out of your, uh, your fundamental faith, your faith commitments, right? What Jason just said relates to law and political engagement comes from something said shortly after this by Knox. And what Knox was doing was responding to something Jason says at the start of this clip about how we think of getting involved in shaping culture and what getting involved means today. That, so we don't say, hey, you need to get involved in the shaping of culture. And that means, let me tell you how to vote. You know, Because that's I, what most people actually mean by it. Can I tell you why I think they mean that, though? I think that yeah. everyone looks... 
No one wants to do the hard work. And no one, everything, everybody wants it microwavable, right? Like, right, yes. Like, that's the that's the thing. When you look at the current power structures, it seems like you can get what you know would come over time with your family, with that sphere, what would come over time and faithfulness to your church. You You think that, oh, well, shoot, if I can just go right here to the federal government, I, it's not like I can get that much faster. Like that's the right. microwave, right? <laughs> if I could, if we could just get that, then the microwave will happen and we're, boom, we're there. But when you talk yeah. about going into other jurisdictions, it seems like the time frame for success is multiplied by three. Yeah, 30 maybe. But yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking but I three think lifetimes. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the same. It's the Thing, though it's because we think we have um our fundamental metaphors about what kind of place we live in are mechanical right they're physics metaphors um and, and legal right so we have this machine that runs and the levers that build and construct and run the machine are laws right so yeah. that's our that's our that's our metaphor whereas the um the scriptural understanding is organic uh is organic metaphors mm. uh and then uh and then um music right Th- those are kind of our the the uh scriptural you know, more more scriptural metaphors um and so the hierarchies are not mechanical now the final clip is about why I think we run to law rather than to discipleship. So then how, how did, I want to come back to that because I think there's a, I want, when we get to talking, I want to talk a little bit about the struggle of, of that we have right now was we're fighting, but probably when Fowler comes in here, we'll talk about law because law right now is where everybody's running to either side and they're doing that, right? They're not thinking about the cosmological reality and starting there. They're running to they're Machiavellian. They're running to the law to impose it. Um, As but, if the law is somehow... Uh, a, a metaphor that can reshape the world. So as I consider these three clips, I can't help but think back to the question of how do we end abortion? Now, there's no doubt in my mind that women have a culpability that has been ignored by Christians because of our low estimation of the dominion of sin that Scripture talks about and the nature of sin. No sin. And abortion is clearly a sin, is without personal culpability by all those involved, including the woman. And I've said that. Denying culpability is what we'll always do if that's an option. And we saw that in Adam and Eve, both passing off culpability. So we've really messed up there. But I think what we overlook is that biblical theology gives us not just a cosmology for what kind of place this was created to be and what kind of place it is now after sin was imputed to all men, as we read about in Romans 5.12. And we we came under the moral law of God, uh, which for the unsaved is um, actually considered a law of sin and death. We read that in the first verses of Romans 8. That's what the law of God becomes to the unregenerate. 
sin and death. And the biblical cosmology tells us what kind of place God in Christ by the Holy Spirit is in the process of creating the new creation. But a metaphor for what the dominion mandate is is also, I think, found in that cosmology. And to put it in the context of the clips I've played today, the metaphor for understanding what we're doing in pursuing the dominion mandate is a gardening project, not a law project. I'm not saying law is unimportant, but the metaphor for understanding it is different. In other words, given that the Christian cosmology of the Middle Ages has been kicked out and supplanted by that of the satanic clubs, I would like to suggest that the metaphor for exercising dominion would, in our present context, be that of first needing to clean up the garden that's been left to ruins, then preparing the soil and the rest of the Eden for a garden, and then preparing the soil that's outside of Eden for a garden. And because we tend to think in terms of legal and mechanistic metaphors, I think we too often conceive of ourselves as engaged in a law project. In other words, given that the Christian cosmology has been kicked out and supplanted by the one um, expressed in the Satan clubs, I'd like to suggest that the metaphor for exercising dominion in our present context would be that of cleaning up a garden that's been left in ruins, the church, then preparing the soil in the rest of Eden for the planting of a garden, and then preparing the soil that's outside of Eden for the planting of a garden. But because we tend to think in terms of legal and mechanistic metaphors, I think we too often think we're engaged in a law project rather than a gardening one. And the question is this, how do we get the wild, fallen wilderness that is our cultural legal soil at this point to a place where a death penalty for both abortive women and abortion providers can grow? It could be the natural fruit of the ground. It would make sense. And, and when you live in a cosmos where the controlling metaphor is law, law becomes paramount and overemphasized. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. Here are my adjectives there. It becomes paramount and overemphasized. And I think that's because the evolutionary air we've been breathing for the last 100 years tells us that law itself is what shapes things and makes them what they are. And we can fall into thinking the laws we enact will do that too. That if we can just enact this law, it will shape us into a righteous nation. And, and I assume being a righteous nation is what we would be pursuing. Not just law and order, but righteousness. But, but God is the one who shapes us. And he shapes a nation by shaping its people. And as Jason said in the first clip I played, he does that 
by changing the imaginations of his people. In our case, from a people who wrongly imagine that we live in a law-driven and mechanistic-shaped cosmology divorced from anything that's organic, that grows because of the Holy Spirit, empowers farmers who walk by the Spirit and know how to grow an organic righteousness that exceeds what the moral laws of the Ten Commandments prohibit. You see, we must go beyond just not killing our neighbor to loving our neighbor. We need to go beyond um, not just bearing false witness to actually being truthful, you see. But what I'd like to suggest is when you live in a mechanistic cosmos that runs like a machine, dependent strictly on the laws that operate the parts, well, you'll tend to think you can pull out a bad law, a part that's gone wrong, and plop down in its place something from the juridical polity, and and that law is going to then change things. Now, certainly, a law imposing the death penalty on women involved with abortion would deter abortion. But by itself, it can't bring about righteousness because that power belongs to God alone. And, and what I'm suggesting we consider is this. While God can use that kind of law to bring about righteousness, that might also happen with a law imposing a lesser sanction if it is joined with a public acknowledgement that Christians have sinned in thinking about abortion in relation to women and saying why they no longer think there is any culpability-free zone with abortion. And as that begins to work its way into the soil and into our imaginations and our thinking, there'll be a point at which we would say, why? Why is this not a capital offense? But if the soul's not ready for whatever law we enact with respect to women, it may not only fail to bear fruit, but is it possible that it might be choked out, just as states are doing now by choking out Dobbs and putting something worse than Roe in its place? And think about it. We do have that kind of farming analogy in the Scripture, don't we? Now, again, not trying to say one thing or the other, that it's death penalty or nothing, or it's a, a Class A misdemeanor or nothing. Uh, but I am saying that we need to give cognizance to how we think this world works and what we think what we're doing will will work, what effect it will have. Again, I'm not talking about a relativism here, okay? But I am saying that farmers need wisdom to know what crops will grow in what kind of soil and how to develop the soil for certain crops to flourish. So in the analogy I used last week about planting carrots, and my dad said, no, we never planted carrots because the soil was too rocky. When I planted some carrots, I dug out a little area and I made sure it wasn't rocky so that I could grow carrots. Otherwise, they wouldn't have grown well. But mechanics just need parts. Now, I, I want to hasten to add 
that I think Mike Johnson and his camp think the same way. It's just that how they think is you have to count the votes on the Supreme Court before you can decide what to do. And you can't really trust God to work to put the right people in place or direct their hearts toward the right thing. So like a machine, we need to be at the knobs and levers because it's no longer God's cosmos with him at the knobs and the levers. So see, we can, we can both fall onto different sides of the same wrong cosmological thinking. Or perhaps I should say that if our cosmological thinking isn't right, there are two ways we can fall off of it. And one is represented by Mike Johnson, and one is represented by those who think you can just take out a bad law and put in a good law, and it's going to produce certain things. Both of those are mechanistic, law-based cosmology. So cosmology does matter. Marx knew it, and I'm suggesting that Christians need to pay more attention to it than they do and think about it when we go about exercising and pursuing the dominion mandate. Well, thank you for joining me for today. I look forward to your thoughts and the feedback, if you have any, and look forward to having you with me again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.